Okay, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 8, uh, 20 to 9, 7 this morning. In the first year of his seventh century of life, if you think about that, because he's going into his 601st year, and that's his seventh century, which I thought was an interesting number, Noah stepped forth out of the ark with his family and every living thing which had accompanied him into the ark, not one single creature or person having perished. And they stepped out to a new world order. That's such a popular term nowadays that I've entitled our lesson, A New World Order. And this truly was a new world order. The world which Noah saw was drastically changed from the world that he had known before the flood. It was, of course, the same planet. It was planet Earth because the planet itself had not been annihilated by the flood. But the world as he had once known it, as 2 Peter 3.6 says, had perished. The sun, for the very first time, would have blinded man's eyes. I thought about this this morning as I had to put down my sun visor and the, and the sun was blinding my vision. It would have blinded man's eyes with an intensity previously unknown in the pre-flood world. Because, you know, that protective water vapor canopy was now gone. And also for the first time, man could experience sunburn and the direct rays of the sun coming on him, which, of course, is what aged him. As Noah's descendants would soon discover as they explored their new world, much of the earth was going to be barren now of greenery. The globe would no longer be covered with lush and and, uh, tropical vegetation, which had stretched from pole to pole in the pre-flood world. There were now going to be vast deserts and polar ice caps, and a greatly increased hostile environment. Also, there would have very likely been a state of great instability, which existed in the crust of the earth for quite some time following the flood. And this may have been, and probably was, evidenced by recurrent volcanic activity and uh, earthquakes for several hundred years. As a matter of fact, even to today, we experience these things, which are all an aftermath from what happened at the time of the flood. And we know also that following the flood, as we talked about in our lesson last week, there were were new wind currents, which uh, made the environment of the new world much less (laughs) user-friendly. As they say, that's another term in our computer age. So the the world was less user-friendly because uh, there were storms now of all kinds, storms that the pre-flood people had never heard of, had never experienced storms such as we mentioned, you know, hurricanes, typhoons, cyclones, thunderstorms, <clears throat> tornadoes, all those sort of things. The loss of the protective water vapor canopy and the resulting winds also brought about the ice age, another aftermath of the flood. Um, the topography, we talked about this, was also much more rugged than the antediluvian world had known because huge mountain ranges had been uplifted. And this, too, made much of the post-flood world, uh, the land, unusable for human life and for growing crops. The rugged topography, the ice caps, and the increased amount of the earth, which was now needed to store all the additional water, you know, meaning much bigger oceans, bigger and deeper oceans, 
than had been in the pre-flood world, and of course also huge inland lakes, which existed especially at the time of Noah. All this meant that there was far less livable land surface on the earth than before the flood. Of course, now, Noah and his family wouldn't have known all this from their limited perspective on, uh, you know, their limited vision up there on the mountains of Ararat and from the valley to which they descended. But they would have observed, of course, the new air currents, the new wind in the air that they had never before experienced, and that probably produced a chill on the mountain slopes. And they would have also noticed, of course, the great size of the mountains themselves, which they had never seen in the uh, pre-flood world. And they would have noticed the dark clouds in the sky, which was something unknown before the flood. And those clouds, those dark clouds, might well have frightened them uh, with thoughts that there could possibly be another flood. Not only would there also have been uprooted trees and smashed vegetation, you know, everywhere they looked, lying all over. If you can just imagine the debris left all over the earth as they looked about them. But there also would have been, and this is kind of awful to think about, but there would have been carcasses and bones of all kinds of animals and peoples protruding out of the crust of the earth and in the crevices of rocks and in all sorts of places where they had been carried. Although most of the bodies would have been buried by all the, the eruptions that had taken place and also probably had fallen, would have fallen into some of the cracks that were produced with the earthquakes and that sort of thing, and by the erosion which the receding waters would have caused as they rushed to fill in those newly formed ocean basins and other inland low places, yet there still must have been a substantial residue of death everywhere visible to the eight inhabitants which came out of the ark. The earth had truly been purged of all the horrible evil which had dominated the antediluvian world. The evil of that degenerate society had merely made a mockery of all the, you know, the fantastic beauty which God had created for man in the pre-flood earth. And yet, in his grace... God would bring a new kind of beauty to the earth. And you do have to admit, you know, as we look around at the world as we know it, it has a great deal of beauty to it. There would be a, new, a beauty of a new kind of landscape, a beauty which provided even greater variety in the scenes and in the seasons. You know, the, post, the, post, the pre-flood world was all the same everywhere. Everywhere was the same kind of, look, you know, the look, the tropical look, like if you'd go to the Amazon today, that lush tropical look. But now in the post-flood world, don't we have a great variety of scenes and, and, and the seasons that we enjoy? I mean, there's a wonderful beauty in the earth as we know it. It was by God's grace that he provided man with a new, not only a new scene and a new experience, but a new opportunity for a new beginning in an essentially new world. Now, in our lesson this morning, we are going to consider some very important topics concerning Noah's thankfulness and worship of God. And then we're going to look also at a renewed commandment given to Noah by God to fill the earth, you know, to multiply and fill the earth, and then some new conditions which God established 
for the new world order of the post-flood world. So the three main divisions of our outline are that we will look at, first of all, Noah's consecration, a renewed command, and then the new conditions. So let's begin by looking at part one, Noah's consecration. And under this section, we have three divisions also. Um, first of all, we'll look at a significant altar, then a sweet aroma, and then some safety assurances that God gives to Noah. So begin with a significant altar, and for this, look at chapter 8, verse 20, where the scripture says, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The amazing thing about Genesis chapter 8 is not that God remembered Noah. Remember we looked at that in verse 1 of this chapter? The amazing thing is not that God remembered Noah. The amazing thing, really, is that Noah remembered God. The first act of Noah, after disembarking from the ark and coming down the mountain, was that he built an altar to the Lord. His first inclination, now if you think about it, the first thing he could have done after he came down off that mountain was to have built some kind of a shelter for himself and for his family because he wouldn't know when bad, bad weather might strike again. So that could have been his first inclination or his first inclination could have been to figure out plans for survival. You know, now what do we do? What comes next? It was such a forbidding and unpromising new environment, especially, you know, when he first saw what it looked like. But Noah, remember, was a righteous man. And therefore, he had his mind and his heart not first on himself or even on his family, but he had his mind and his heart first on God. So the first thing that uh, Noah did after he came off the ark was to establish a place of worship. And again, this man is a tremendous example to us, isn't he? He put God first in everything. We're told that he built an altar unto the Lord. Now, this would be the place, of course, then, where Noah and his family and his future generations for probably some time would come to worship God as they went about getting settled and adjusted in their new life in the new world. This would be where they could meet with God and offer sacrifices to him on a regular basis. Although um, what we have here in Genesis 8.20 is the first time that the word altar appears in the scripture, it's not the first time, and you know this, that an offering was made, right? It's the first time we have the word altar used, but it's not the first offering. The first sacrifice of an animal was actually made by who? Right, by God himself. God himself, when he killed an animal in order to clothe Adam and Eve after they sinned in the, in the garden. So it was by God's own example there in, in Eden that man was taught the way that the way of access to God was to be through the offering of an animal sacrifice and the shedding of innocent blood, innocent sinless blood. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 21. And then we have discussed, of course, in past lessons... The possibility that Adam and Eve, and perhaps um, their, well, brought their children there too, that they brought their sacrifices probably to the very entrance of the Garden of Eden between those two cherubim who stood there guarding the entrance to the garden with their flaming, swirling swords. 
And this may well have been the place then that Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices that we read about in chapter 4. We do not know when the Garden of Eden itself may have been uh, removed from the earth. You know, it was there for a while. We don't know how long. Very possibly, the Garden of Eden disappeared with the flood. That may have been when it disappeared from off the face of the earth. But regardless, Noah's altar, after the flood, became the the first place of the post-flood world for man to worship God. And I don't know if you remember in that video that we saw, they showed a picture of the altar that is at the foot of Mount Ararat, and it's very interesting. It's extremely old, goes back to as far as you can go just about in human civilization. And that altar may very possibly have been the very altar that Noah and his family built. And right by it, remember, was a rock that had eight crosses engraved into the rock. Very, very interesting. Well, after Noah built the altar, we are told that he offered a sacrifice, which makes sense. If you're going to make an altar, you're going to offer a sacrifice. But Noah's sacrifice was a very, very great one when you consider his circumstances. We're told, if you look at that verse, that he took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So Noah offered one of every kind or every species of clean animal and bird which came off of the ark. This means that he literally offered dozens of creatures, which were very probably the domesticated animals and birds, you know, the ones that he would need the most as he was trying to survive there on the earth. Uh, Remember, there were no other animals on the whole earth, no, more, no other air-breathing animals, no other birds other than those which he carried with him on the ark. So rather than merely offering one animal sacrifice or even eight animals for each member of his family, Noah offered to God one-seventh of all the clean animals in the whole wide world. And that is a very, very generous offering, isn't it? Remember, he took seven of all the clean animals. Well, he offered one-seventh of all that he had. So it was a very generous offering. But after all, had not God been very, very generous to Noah? Of course he had. He saved him and his family. He forewarned him about the coming judgment. He told him ahead of time what to do in order to escape that judgment. So Noah had very much to be thankful for much for which to praise God. And it was at that time not only that he um, offered the sacrifices, but probably also he recommitted himself to God and asked for God's continued continued um, guidance and direction in his life because he would surely need it, wouldn't he? I mean, starting out all over again. So I'm sure that he uh, asked God for his guidance and direction and also, of course, confessed his sin and his family members would confess their sin as they went to the altar, probably at least on a weekly basis. Well, that's what we're going to say about the significant altar. Let's look now at the sweet aroma. And for this, I'm just going to read the first part of verse 21 where it says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. 
The Lord God, we're told here, was well pleased with Noah's act of faith and worship. That's why, you know, it was a sweet Savior. That means that that, um, it was pleasing to God that Noah offered one of every clean animal and bird that he had taken on the ark. Now, God was not only pleased with the offering, but he was also pleased with the heart of Noah, the sincerity of his heart. God does not accept every offering, does he? Didn't we see this when Cain and Abel took their offerings before him? He didn't accept every offering. It had to be the offering of uh, an innocent animal and the head involved the shedding of blood. But even perhaps if Cain, well, we know, even if Cain had offered the right kind of offering with the wrong kind of heart attitude, God would not have been pleased. So, and we know that God, Cain's offering did not please the Lord. A lot of the Jewish offerings, you know, by the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and other very religious people who didn't have their heart right, God did not, he was not pleased with their offerings, even if they were the right type of offering. Same with us. You know, we're to be living sacrifices, aren't we? And we can do it begrudgingly, you know, okay, God, I'll do this for you. Well, he's not going to be pleased with that kind of, you know, he's looking at the heart attitude. We have to have the right attitude and do it cheerfully as unto the Lord and and lovingly wanting to be a living sacrifice for him. After all, it is our reasonable service, isn't it, for what he has done for us. So we're told that the Lord smelled a sweet savor meaning that it pleased him. Now, it wasn't the sacrifices of the animals themselves which pleased God, but it was what those sacrifices symbolized which pleased him. What did they all point to? They pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his future sacrifice on the cross. God saw beyond the animals that were being sacrificed to his son. Jesus' sacrifice of a sinless life would satisfy once and for all God's holiness and his wrath against sin. So, and we read in Ephesians 5 too, by the way, that Christ's sacrifice was also a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord God. In fact, as the fragrance of Noah's offerings ascended up to him, God purposed in his heart that he was going to make three great promises to Noah um, and really through Noah to the whole human race. But it was the future death of his son, Jesus Christ, that was making it possible for God to make these promises of Genesis 21 and 22 that we're going to look at next as we look at safety assurance. Now we can assume that Noah and his family would have been greatly affected by the sights of the devastation which met their eyes as they came off of that ark and down the mountain, you know, to the valley below. The aftermath of the terrors of God's judgment, as we said earlier, would have been literally visible everywhere. No doubt they would have wondered um, if such great destruction of life would not be poured out again at some point in time. Noah knew, and I'm sure each one of his sons knew, of their own sin nature that they inherited from Adam, and they would have been well aware of, you know, the sin nature that their children, their future children, which would also inherit. So what was to prevent another future judgment from, like from the one that they had just survived? What was to prevent the waters of the earth from coming back over the land again? and rep- 
repeating the flood judgment? What was to keep Noah and his family and their descendants from experiencing future devastation for their sins? Well, knowing all their anxieties, God made these three promises. The first dealt with never again cursing the ground of the earth. The second dealt with never again destroying all life from off the face of the earth. And the third was with regard to the um, assured consistency of the time and seasons. I'm calling these uh, a safety assurance. We'll look first at the one regarding the ground of the earth, secondly, the life of the earth, and third, the times and seasons of the earth. So let's look first of all at his promise regarding the ground of the earth, and this is in um, verse 21. B, I call it. It says, after the Lord smelled a sweet savor, it says, And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the first post-flood promise that God purposed in his own heart to keep for man's sake was that he would never again curse the earth. God, you remember, had originally cursed the earth, the ground of the earth, because of Adam's sin back in Genesis 3.17. And that was a curse which will continue throughout the whole post-flood world. I mean, it continues even today, doesn't it? The ground is cursed, and it will be all the way until the end. God was not making a promise here in chapter 8 that would remove his original curse on the ground. Rather, he was promising that he would not curse the ground of the earth with an additional curse to the one that he had already pronounced in Eden. And this wasn't because man did not deserve to have an additional curse placed on the ground. Because God himself said, if you notice, he said, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Yet rather than using the truth, what we have here is the doctrine of the total depravity of man. Rather than using the truth of the total depravity of man as his reason for cursing and smiting the earth even further, God used it as his reason not to do so. God was saying to himself, you see here, he really wasn't speaking this to Noah. It says that the Lord said in his own heart. So he's speaking within his own triune Godhead, these promises. Although we know somehow or another they were conveyed to Noah and his family because obviously uh, Moses knew about them to record them for us. But God was saying within himself that because man is so completely helpless to do anything good and to save himself, you know, even from his youth, his thoughts are evil. Because man was so helpless... He, therefore, man, is in desperate need of God's mercy and grace. So it's because of the very fact that man is so completely unable to do anything to save himself that God determined to save him. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, that's, that's our God. He is a merciful God. That's speaking of the mercy and the grace of God. Furthermore, it was God's mercy and grace which determined that he would not again add to man's afflictions by affecting the entire world with an additional curse. Now, we know that during the time of the tribulation, 
one third of the earth will be affected by certain things and then another third will be affected by other things, da 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 da. But he will never again affect the entire earth as long as the earth remains. It says that in verse 22, while the earth remains. Of course, we know that eventually this whole earth will be destroyed by fire. So this first Genesis 8 promise, along with the next two that we'll look at, are only guaranteed for as long as this earth remains. At the end of the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, after that thousand-year reign of Christ, there is to be an end to this earth. And then what will the Lord Jesus do? Right. He will create a new heavens and a new earth, which will be perfect. And never, ever again will sin enter into that new heaven and new earth. Okay, that was um, his, his promise regarding the ground of the earth. Let's look at the one regarding the life of earth. And this is in the next part of verse 21 where he says, Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. God also purposed in his heart here that he would never again smite every living thing. As he had done when? Just in the flood, right. And again, we know that during the tribulation, um, as much as one half of the world's population will be destroyed, but God still will keep his promise. He will not destroy every living thing, and not as he had done with a global flood. So this was not a promise regarding local calamities. It was not a promise even regarding massive judgments against whole cities. We know that later on in Genesis, he destroys the whole city of Sodom and Gomorrah. It, it doesn't even have to do with just nations or peoples, but it's a divine promise not to destroy all life on earth, again, as he had done in the flood. Now, remember that God was speaking these promises to himself in response to what? To Noah's sacrifice, which was, the only reason God gave these promises is because Noah's sacrifice was a picture of the coming sacrifice of his son. Therefore, based on his foreknowledge of the satisfactory atonement for man's sin, which would be accomplished by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God could promise to withhold his judgment and show grace to a lost world by not sending another flood. Okay, the third promise has, uh, is with regard to the time and the seasons, and this we read about in verse 22. It says, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. This third promise of God in response to Noah's sacrifice was that there would be a perpetuity of the seasons. Boy, have I gotten behind. You must have wondered what I was doing. There's Christ's sacrifice. Here's uh, never again destroying all living things. Here we go. There would be a perpetuity of the um, seasons and of the day-night cycle by which we figure time. The flood probably, most likely, had interrupted the normal cycle and had most likely produced environmental havoc in which times and seasons were greatly disturbed. God said he would never again do that without the steady cycle of days and nights and, and weeks and months and years and seasons. Man could not be sure of having the necessities of life. 
You know, it's very important that we know there's a consistency of orbiting around the sun and, and keeping time and, and keeping everything going. Because if, if that got out of whack, we probably would not survive. So in these three promises, what was God really doing? He was committing to uniformity, you know, consistency, uniformity, with regard to the physical processes of the earth. He was saying, as long as the earth remaineth, he would never again have a catastrophic intervention where everything would be involved and disrupt the whole world again. You know, the vast majority of the earth's processes do depend in some way or another on the constancy of the earth's rotation, uh, not only on its axis, but also, as you see in the picture, as it goes around the sun. Dr. Henry Morris said this. He said, well, let me not read his quote. You can read it in the notes, but let me just essentially say what he's saying here. You know, we've talked about evolutionists being uniformitarians. And in Second in Peter, it talks about those who are scoffers in the end days because they will say, well, where's the promise of his coming for, you know, since the fathers, all things continue as they have always been from the beginning. And this is called uniformitarianism, where they do not believe that things will uh, be interrupted by catastrophism. And that's why they disregard the flood. They don't believe in the flood, the global flood. They don't believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They say, well, all things will just continue on going until maybe we eventually just burn out. Well, God promised this uniformity here in in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, didn't he? And so they're really taking God's promise of what we have now, which is a wonderful promise of grace and mercy, And they're using what they see in the present to judge the past and the future, aren't they? So, you know, they're they're, they're uniformitarians. And yes, right now we do live in a uniformitarian world, but it's only by God's grace that we do, based on his promises here. So they just have everything all backwards. You can't use science, you know, you can't judge the present to determine the past and the future, and that's what they're trying to do. And there is a real good quote in your notes. Maybe it will help make it clear by Dr. Henry Morris. But let's move on for time's sake and look at now the renewed command of God. And for this, we have to jump. We have to look first of all at chapter 9, verse 1, and then jump over and look at verse 7 because he repeats this command twice to Noah and his sons. It says, chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now look at verse 7. And you, he's still talking to the same people. Obviously, there weren't any others around. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. As a second Adam, and that's exactly what Noah was, wasn't he? It was like a second Adam with regard to being the new head of the human race. Noah was blessed. It tells us in verse 1, he was blessed by God just as Adam had been. God had blessed Adam in chapter 1, verse 28. Now, because Noah was the new Adam, that which God established with him applied to the whole human race, which would come from him and from his sons. We find 
in Genesis 9, 1 and 9, 7, that just as God had previously commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he again commanded Noah and his sons, of course, with their wives, they couldn't do it without the women, could they? (laughs) Uh, To also be fruitful and multiply. In fact, God gave this command, as we just saw, he gave it to Noah twice since he desired for both man and the animals, of course, it's applied to them, to be uh, to very quickly multiply and replenish the newly purged world with life. So it was a double command because he really wanted them to get going on this. You know, got a big job, you got to fill up the whole earth all over again. And we notice, however, that in this Genesis 9 command, unlike the one given in Genesis chapter 1 to Adam, the further command to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. Remember that was given to Adam? Not only to be fruitful and multiply, but to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. That is not included here in the command to Noah and his sons. What had happened? Why was that changed? The fall. The fall of man had changed man's situation. Now Satan has, has dominion over this earth, doesn't he? Man does not have supreme dominion over the earth anymore. Satan is the current God with a small g of this world. He is the prince of this world. Donald Barnhouse said this. He said that man's mission to be fruitful here does not refer merely to the reproduction of the species, but to fruitfulness in every good work before God. I thought that was interesting. He said, man is not here on earth to live according to his whim, but to live in accordance with God's plan. So don't only be fruitful in reproducing and having children, but we need to be fruitful in bearing fruit for God, don't we? Okay, let's look now at part three of our outline. This is where we'll spend most of our morning in the new conditions for the new world order. And in this section, we'll see uh, one of his conditions is a protection regarding the animals. Another one is permission regarding the eating of meat. Another one has to do with prohibition regarding the blood in the meat, not, not eating the blood. And the fourth has to do with punishment regarding murder, capital punishment. So we'll begin by looking at... Um, God's protection regarding animals. And for this, let's look at verse 2 of chapter 9. By the way, I want you to see we are in chapter 9. It's not even Christmas and we're in chapter 9. Remember all last year we only got three chapters? So we're really moving along. (laughs) It says in in verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air. Upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. The first new condition of the new world order of the post-flood earth was that man was to be feared and dreaded by animals. Apparently, even after the fall of Adam and Eve, animals uh, before the flood had not feared man, but had been sub submissive and obedient to man. And this, of course, this situation would obviously have come in very handy for who? (laughs) For Noah, as the animals of the earth um, were not only came to the ark and went into the ark, they wouldn't have done that 
if they were really fearful of man, would they? But as they went into the ark, and then they were carefully put into their various nesting places within the ark, and then confined together with Noah and his family for over a year. However, now in the post-flood world, God determined to put a fear and a dread into the animal world, a fear and a dread of man. Actually, the word uh, dread means terror. So a terror of man into every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and even upon all the fishes, it says, of the sea. Now, I wonder why God would do that. Well, if God, in his great mercy, did not put this instinctive fear of man within the animals, and this is an instinct which causes animals to just naturally shrink back from man, then the human population would probably have been devoured and eliminated long ago, especially when animals began to fill the earth much more abundantly than men. So unlike the, uh, the dominion and the supremacy in complete harmony and affection, which Adam enjoyed before the fall, and also unlike the respect and the harmony uh, with animals that was enjoyed by such godly men as Noah after the fall, the new world order of the post-flood world is one in which man rules over the animal kingdom by way of fear and not by affection. Matthew Henry said this, in his commentary, he said, quote, The horse and ox patiently submit to the bridle and yoke, and the sheep is dumb both before the shearer and before the butcher, for the fear and dread of man are upon them. Those creatures that are any way hurtful to us are restrained, though now and then man may be hurt by some of them, yet they do not combine together to rise up in rebellion against man. What is it that keeps wolves out of our towns and lions out of our streets and confines them to the wilderness but this fear and dread? End of quote. Of course, we don't really have that situation here, but can you imagine even as much as 100 years ago and in many countries around the world, what is it that keeps the wolves out of many of those villages and, and tribes and the lions away from people? It's this, fortunately, this dread and fear that the animals have of man. This is the end of side one. Please turn the cassette over for the continuation of this message. Millennial Kingdom, of course, you know, the original harmony and affection and the lack of dread and the lack of fear between man and animals will be restored the way it was back in um, the days of Adam. It says in in many scriptures in the Old Testament that the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the kid, a cow and a bear will be able to eat together, feed together, the lion will eat straw, not meat, he will eat straw like an ox, and it will be perfectly safe for even a child to play in the hole of an asp. You say, not my child, I don't care if it is the millennial kingdom, (laughs) no way. <clears throat> okay, second um, new condition is the promise or the permission regarding the eating of meat. 
So let's look at verse 3 for that. God says, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. Now, we can understand why the animals would need to fear and dread man when we see that another new condition of the post-flood world was that God was giving man the right to eat the flesh of the animals. So it's a good thing that they were a little bit fearful of man, or they'd all, they'd all be devoured. There were perhaps several reasons for God sanctioning the eating of meat. One may have been to do with the weakened ability of the post-flood world, you know, the environment to provide the best atmosphere and nutrients, particularly protein, for man's health and man's strength and life. Man would no longer live as long as he had in the antediluvian world because of this change in environment and the nutrients and all that sort of thing. Both sin and the global flood altered the earth's environment and topography tremendously so that the earth would not produce the quantity and the quality of food which had been produced in the uh, pre-flood world where that protective water vapor canopy had just you know, provided a a total greenhouse effect. So man might have added meat to man's diet for his own health, you know, for protein. Secondly, and because there wouldn't be that, you know, it would just add an additional food source is what I'm trying to say. I know people say that meat isn't healthy, and it isn't good to eat a lot of um, red meat, is it? Secondly, the earth in the post-flood world would suffer from all kinds of natural disasters which would further deplete the vegetation and the food supplies. And these disasters, of course, had been unknown in the antediluvian world, and they would include, as we mentioned before, storms of all kind. You know, you can imagine those early farmers working all summer long to produce a harvest and then along would come a tornado and just totally wipe them out. They'd have nothing to eat if God didn't allow them to eat meat and fish and that sort of thing. And there would be regional floods, there would be famines, there would be droughts, heat waves, the ice age, uh, winter, severe winters, and all kinds of other disorders within the natural processes. So God, in his mercy and grace, was enlarging Man's food supply. How many of you just recently ate one of those? Kind of nasty to think about eating it when you actually look at the thing, isn't it? (laughs) So he was enlarging man's food supply by allowing him to eat the flesh of animals. Prior to the flood, man was only to have been a vegetarian, right? Before the flood, only a vegetarian. But you can bank on the fact that ungodly, disobedient men were already eating meat even before the flood, and before this promise, I should say. But now God was actually giving man the privilege of eating meat. Well, we know that, of course, later on to Israel, God would make a very careful distinction between clean animals and unclean animals, you know, which ones they were allowed to eat and which ones they were not allowed to eat. But then after the establishment of the church men would again be freed from those restrictions that he had given to Israel. Um, And you can read about that in 1 Timothy 4.4. Furthermore, as Genesis 9.3 tells us, the post-flood man was not only divinely permitted to eat every kind of animal meat, but God also said that every green herb that he desired to eat was 
for him to eat as well. So God was giving men great freedom as to what they could eat, you know, great freedom as to their food supply, which in those early days would really be very important. There was only one restriction placed on man with regard to what he was allowed to eat. Of course, you know, he wasn't going to eat poisonous things, but only one regard, um, and that was to not eating any meat that had what in it? Blood in it. So let's look at verse 4. He says, But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, so he's equating life with blood, shall ye not eat. This is the prohibition regarding blood. With God's new condition regarding the sanctioning of the eating of meat, he made this one qualification, and it was that the blood of the animals was not to be eaten with the animal's flesh. You see, the animal's flesh was provided as uh, meat for man, but the life of the animal was not for nourishment. It was for sacrifice. The meat was for man. The blood, which represented its life, was for sacrifice. It says in Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is where? In the blood. I, God, have given it to you upon the altar. The blood is to go where? On the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. It is the blood which performs such life processes, you know, as carrying the necessary chemicals of the air and and food to the whole body, our whole body, so as to sustain and renew the flesh, as well as to maintain the consciousness and the thought processes of the brain. The complexity of this incredible physiological process is called the life of the creature. You know, that's what distincts gives a distinction between living things and inanimate objects is that you know the life and the life is made possible because of the blood the blood of an animal the blood of a person represents its life and this was why the blood of a sacrificed animal was accepted by the lord god as the substitutionary death for the sinful individual who was offering that sacrifice. The sinner himself deserved deserved to die, right? Because the wages of his sin was death. But God allowed him to live because the shed blood that he was offering, representing the life of that sacrifice, was covering it covered his sins. And of course, you know, the blood of all the sacrificed animals were only allowed to temporarily cover sins because the blood prefigured the coming sacrifice of the perfect lamb of god the lord jesus christ who died in man's place as man himself he became a man so he could die in man's place that's why animals could never satisfy god they couldn't die in our place because they're not men so the god god himself had to become man and die in our place and shed his sinless blood which represented his sinless life to cover our sins. Okay, and then I have a lot more about that in your notes that you can read about, but maybe every time you eat meat, you should think about Christ's blood, which had to be poured out to provide life for us. And, uh, you know, that's where the word kosher comes from. 
the Jews, they have to make sure that all the meat, all the blood is drained out of the meat before they ever eat it. And that's what kosher meat is. It has been totally drained of all the blood. Okay, let's look now at the punishment regarding murder. And this is the last um, new condition of the post-flood world that we'll talk about in this lesson. And for this, we'll look at verses 5 and 6. God says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of, of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. If you want to put in parentheses there by your Bible, capital punishment, that's what that's talking about. After instructing Noah with regard to the shedding of the blood of animals, God then gave even more serious instructions regarding the shedding of human blood. The New World Order was going to include God's divine instruction for the protection of the life of man, protection of man's life. God established the death penalty for the new world order. God did that, not man. God did it. He established the death penalty. First of all, he made a law regarding the animals. Speaking as a judge, which he is, and he has every right to be because he's God, God stated that he would require, and that's a judicial term there, that he would require the death of any beast which killed a man. And this is repeated over in Exodus 21:28. Animals are important for the earth and they're important for man. They're also critical for the environment and for nature. However, the animals, remember we learned this last year, the animals were created for who? For man. Everything in the universe was created for man because man himself was the apex, the climax of uh, God's creation. Because man was made in the very image of God himself. Therefore, any animal which attacked and killed a person was to be put to death. So this is speaking of the death penalty for animals. And man himself was required by God to carry out that punishment. Did you ever know that there was a death penalty for animals? Well, there is, and here it is. And then verse 5 goes on to include God's law governing those men, those men who killed their fellow man. Any person who willfully put to death another human being was to be himself punished with death. So God here was instituting what we know of as capital punishment. In order, he did this, of course, in order to protect the life of man. In the new world order of the post-flood age, God was establishing the institute of human government because he was giving initially Noah permission to to carry this out, but then Noah's descendants and, and it would go into human government that would be responsible for carrying out this law of uh, capital punishment. And of course, as you know, he would give further and further laws as we go on into the scripture. Before the flood, there was apparently no formal institution for governing man's behavior and his actions. So what was the result? A total anarchy, total chaos, total wickedness. 
There was no systematic method ordained by God to prevent or punish crime. Man lived um, initially in the Garden of Eden, a very short-lived age of innocence. You know, remember before man even knew what good and evil, well, he knew good, but he didn't know evil, and he really didn't know good until it was contrasted with evil. That was called the age of innocence in which Adam and Eve lived. And a short-lived, we don't know how long it was, but it wasn't very long because they didn't even know each other intimately. So it was a very short-lived age of innocence there in the Garden of Eden. And in that age, man didn't do too well, did he? He was to govern himself just on obedience to God, and he was very innocent, didn't even know about sin. But it didn't last too long. Adam didn't do too well because he disobeyed God. And then what did he try to do? He tried to blame his wife. (laughs) And indirect, well, actually directly, he blamed God himself who gave him that wife. Adam's willful sin, remember, he wasn't deceived. Eve was, but he wasn't. So his willful sin against God brought about the death of all mankind. So, you know, if you want to point the finger at any one man, it would have to be Adam. He, he brought about the death of all of us, you know, thereafter. And then after the fall of man in the antediluvian era, man was to operate by way of his conscience. He was no longer innocent, so it wasn't the age of innocence. Then it was the age of conscience. He was to be uh, ruled by his own conscience. You know, he knew what was right and wrong. And also by the righteousness which was preached to him by that godly line of the Sethite patriarchs. Remember them? But man quickly, we saw, quickly seared his conscience and turned deaf ears to the patriarchs. And he allowed instead um, for his passions and his lusts to rule his life. So we saw even in the era of conscience, or the age of conscience, that it didn't take very long for Cain to kill his own brother, Abel. And remember Lamech, the bad Lamech, who boasted of slaying a young man who had only wounded him? And then what was God's own assessment of the antediluvian world that we read about in chapter 6? He said that the world was great with wickedness and it was, you know, just evil continually and it was totally corrupt before him and it was filled with violence. So man didn't do too well in the age of innocence. He didn't do too well in the age of conscience. So now um, God was going to try to give him another chance in an age which we could call the age of human government. So this far, um, man had a very bad record in regard to his concern for his fellow man. Actually, as we go down through the ages um, until where we are today, right now we're in the age of grace. But even in the age of grace, how does it end up? In apostasy? Even his church is in a state of apostasy. Well, not his true church, but Christendom. And um, then he gives us the age of the tribulation, uh, which ends up with all the world gathered together in Armageddon to even battle against Christ himself. And then he, you know, he gives us this wonderful age uh, called the millennial kingdom, which lasts for a thousand years. And who's ruling? Christ himself. Well, how does that end up? Satan is loosed out of the bottomless pit and he 
gathers together a great army, which again tries to rebel against God. So you see, God down through the whole history of mankind is showing us that we can't ever use the excuse that it's, uh, you know, the environment or it's this or it's our education or whatever excuse you might have. They all come to naught because he's given us an opportunity in every kind of situation, even a situation that was perfectly innocent and perfect in the beginning and another situation where Christ himself is ruling. And what does man always show? That he is totally depraved. And apart from God's grace and mercy in in sending us Jesus Christ, we would never be saved. So don't listen to whatever they say, that if we do this and if we do that and if whoever's in the White House, then everything will go well, if we ever know who's going to be in the White House. Um, that it's, it's just not true. Nothing will ever, it, it never will work out. And that's why God gives us all these different ages, to just show us how much we do need him. So anyway, back to capital punishment. God was going to intervene in order to put the fear of himself into man so that they amend so they would not destroy one another and they probably would have if he didn't intervene he said that anyone who would kill a a fellow human being would have to answer to god himself any murder of man was a sin against the sacredness of the divine image of man you know man was made in the image of god even though that image has been marred by sin yet we are still you know we still maintain somewhat the the image of god so to attack a human being is essentially to attack the image of god in that person furthermore all life is a gift from god is it not so to take life away means that the murderer is putting himself in the place of god by taking that human's life Only the Lord gives life, and only he has the right to take it away. And what does that mean regarding the whole issue of euthanasia? Who has the right to take a human's life? Only God. He has an appointed day, and we are not to shorten it. What does it have have to do with the whole issue of abortion? Only God has the right to take human life. So even if the human government fails in It's God-given responsibility to see that justice is carried out. God himself will deal with those who who murder others. In the post-flood world, God was going to give man another opportunity, you see, to try to live righteously on the earth by giving him certain basic laws which were to be upheld by way of human government. And these laws included the authority for capital punishment. God established capital punishment because the human heart is evil. And the fear of punishment, you see, would greatly help to restrain crime. You know where they have the least crime in the world? Where they have the most severe punishment for crime. I mean, like in some places, if you steal, what do they do? They chop off your hand. I mean, that will pretty much (laughs) make you really think before you steal, right? I mean, that's, that's the way we have to deal with one another. If you murder somebody and you're put to death, it would really cut down on the crime. Human government, of course, is not the ultimate answer. How does the, the age of human government end? 
when we get to chapter, is it 10 or 11? The Tower of Babel. You know, men come to try to come together and work their own way up to heaven. So even that fails, of course. Human government is not perfect. It's not the answer because all governments are made of humans, <laughs> and humans are sinful. So governments have their weaknesses, as we know only too well, and they have their limitations. But government is at least better than no restraint at all because then evil men would just totally do their own thing and they would do what is right in their own eyes and anarchy would just rule. Law can at least restrain the hand, even if it cannot regenerate the heart. It can at least restrain the hand. But only the grace of God can change what? The heart, the natural sinfulness of the human heart. You know, God ordained and he established three institutions in, uh, for man. There was the institution, what was the first one? Right? The institution of marriage, right, right away in the Garden of Eden. The institution of marriage and the family. Then there's what we're seeing now, the institution of human government. And third, the institution of, the, right, the member, what we're all members of, I hope, if you're truly a born-again Uh, believer, you are a member of his church. That was the third institution. Well, each institution has its own realm of responsibility and purpose. The institution of the family wields the um, rod of correction. The human human government wields the um, sword of justice, while the church has the great privilege of using the sword of the spirit. That's interesting, isn't it? Rod of correction, sword of justice, and the sword of the spirit. Of course, we know as we look around the world um, that forms of government vary. There's all different kinds of governments around the world. There's dictatorships, and there's monarchies, and there's democracies, and there's communisms, and communism, and there's uh, like where my son is going called a hermit dictatorship, which I'd never heard of before. That's a new one hermit dictatorship you know they the, the country is ruled by one man and it's called a hermit dictatorship because they don't want any outside influence that's why they don't allow email and no computers they don't want any outside influence from the world at all so governments vary but the fact of human human government is clearly established by god he did establish human government so all men are to be obedient to their governments, we're to be obedient to our judges and the rulers, and the only occasion in which believers have the right to disobey is when government interferes with matters of Christian morals and uh, absolutes, such as, what, taking a life or bowing to another god or those sort of things. Well, including in concluding our section here on Genesis 9, uh, verses 5 to 6, regarding capital punishment, I did want to quote from Dr. Henry Morris because his comments on capital punishment I thought were really worthy of repeating. So you can close up your Bible and just listen to me as I read what he has to say about capital punishment. He says, The modern liberal objections to capital punishment, you know, many people want to do away with the electric chair totally, are insufficient to warrant setting aside this decree of God. The prohibition in the Ten Commandments against killing plainly applies only to murder, 
but not to judicial executions. In other words, uh, not the Ten Commandments does not speak against carrying out capital punishment. In fact, he says the Mosaic laws themselves established capital punishment as the penalty not only for murder, but also for breaking any one of the Ten Commandments. You know, back in the, the days of uh, Judaism in Israel, if you, if you committed adultery or if, you, if, you, um, if a son or a daughter was rebellious to their parents, all kinds of things, they would be put to death, capital punishment. I'm glad, you know, we didn't live in that day. Similar, we probably, none of us would still be around. <laughs> Similarly, he says, the Christian dispensation, you know, what we live in right now, in no way sets aside these provisions of the Noahic covenant. The eating of meat, the abstinence from blood, and the authority of the government sword are reaffirmed, he says, all these things are repeated in the New Testament by way of emphasizing to the early Christians that these were not merely a part of the Jewish law, but were integral components in God's original covenant with all men. Christ, in fact, seems almost to echo God's words to Noah when he said, All they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Matthew 26:52. These observations are not to suggest that there is never to be an exception to the punishment of execution for the crime of murder. With God, justice may be tempered with mercy, especially in response to genuine repentance. Though David, for example, was guilty of the capital crimes of adultery and murder, in the case of Bathsheba and Uriah, remember he had Bathsheba's husband put to death, God forgave him, forgave David when he repented. And so David, rather than dying by the sword or by stoning, as he may strictly have deserved, you know, according to the law, he strictly did deserve to be stoned to death. But yet it says he died in a good old age, full of days, riches, and honor. And why was that? Because he truly repented. In like manner, a judge or the particular government structure as established is no doubt warranted in taking such mitigating factors as may exist in a given situation into consideration in determining a sentence, even though he, the judge, would also be fully warranted in carrying out the strict legal penalty of capital punishment. The essential point is that man is hereby given the responsibility of human government and that this responsibility entails, first of all, the recognition of the sacredness of human life and the recognition of capital punishment as the just and legal penalty for murder. End of quote. What he's saying is that, you know, it is the just penalty, but of course, God, our just penalty is what? Death and hell but in his grace and his mercy, when we are truly repentant and we come to him for forgiveness, he forgives us, doesn't he? Same thing with murder, capital punishment. If a person is truly repentant, then the judge and the jury can take that into consideration and the, and the punishment does not need to be carried out. Okay, come back next week and we'll look at the rainbow. <laughs>
the Noahic Covenant. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much once again for um, the example that you have given to us in this godly man named Noah. Thank you, Lord, that he, he put you first, and I pray that we also would do that, put you first in everything in our lives. Seek first the kingdom of God and, and your righteousness. Thank you, Father, also for the assurances that you have given us through this study, that there is no further fear that we need to have that you will destroy all the earth again um, by a flood, and uh, that there is a, a consistency in the um, processes of, of this earth as we, as we spin on our axis and go around the sun, and we can always count on day and night and all the different seasons, and we thank you for that, that um, assurance that we have that life will continue and we can... We can just um, look ahead to each new day. And we thank you, Lord, for the fear that you have put into animals um, so that we need not fear being overtaken by them or devoured by them. And we thank you for the privilege that we have of, of eating meat in this um, day and age in which we live. And we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which the prohibition against eating blood um, speaks of and we do thank you most of all of course for that blood that shed innocent blood which uh, pictures his sinless life that he lived on our behalf and died and was buried and rose again for us and we thank you so much for that and we thank you of course for human government even though sometimes we complain and grumble but we do thank you for government that has put some restraint on the evil of man. There are so many things, Lord, that we probably take for granted and don't even think to pray of, pray, pray for, and, and thank you for, like some of these things I've, I've mentioned this morning. I don't think I've ever thanked you for the privilege of eating meat before. Um, but I, do, I, I just see now that there are so many things that we take for granted that we just need to praise you for. Father, we do love you, and I just thank you again for these women, for their um, hunger to know you better through the study of your word. I, I pray that you'll put your blessing upon each and every one of them, put a hedge of protection around their families, and, Lord, most of all, let them be witnesses for you in this season, especially of the year when hopefully if at least a few people are thinking of your birth, and I pray that we can cause even more people to think about the, the most wonderful thing that has ever happened when you became man to come to this earth to live and to die for us. Father, we just thank you again now. Um, go with each woman and take her back safely to her home. For we pray these things in Jesus Christ's name for his sake. Amen.